nuance, different people's perspectives, different versions of the truth. Like that's what we're after because this is just complex at every single level. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Hey, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in this week. I am super excited to bring you my conversation with Nora Sachs, creator and host of the Richest Hill podcast on Montana Public Radio. The work Nora and her team are doing is amazing. The Richest Hill is a deep exploration of the history of Butte and its ongoing relationship with mining. A big theme in this conversation is complexity. Throughout Nora's reporting, she's uncovered layer upon layer of complexity, and it presents great challenges for authentic storytelling, challenges that Nora and her team are rising to with excellence. I learned a ton from this conversation with Nora, and I hope that you do too. So let's get into it right now. Okay, so we're here today with Nora Sachs. Nora, thanks for coming on the podcast. So great to be here. So you're the host and creator of the Richest Hill podcast. I am just so enthralled with the show. It is as beautifully reported as it is kind of horrifying in many ways. Um, How long have you been working on this idea of doing a a deeply reported single series? You know, the idea for Richest Hill evolved very organically, if you will. Yeah. Um, It how long that's a hard question to answer just because of that it's been sort of a um a ball an avalanche if you will um we've been reporting on this topic for broadly for a number of years like the last couple of years at mtpr yeah a few years probably since fall 2016 okay yeah i I think officially we've been working on richest hill really since the spring of last year of 2018 um we really condensed and workshopped the idea um, with the help of NPR yep. last May, but the origins of it had been coming for a while and it kind of went very quickly from, you know, we've been doing some reporting in Butte. There seems to be a lot happening with Superfund to, okay, we're going to massage this idea, um, see if there's anything there to make a bigger project sure. to, okay, well, maybe we could do this and like maybe we need to fundraise for it to then very quickly, okay, we're doing this Here podcast. We We're doing it anyway. <laughs> You're, you know, I'm moving to Butte and all systems go. So there, I don't remember a very, like a meeting <laughs> where it was like, we are doing a podcast right, about right, Super right. Fund. It was more Montana Public Radio um, and our audience, I think, has had an appetite for a follow-up to Subsurface, which yes. was project on uh, aquatic mussel species mm-hmm. and invasive species in Montana. And that did really well. And so- Won some awards. Won some great awards, has continued to find an audience in classrooms and across the country, and Nikki Willett was the the lead on that. And so that was kind of an experiment. This is a big experiment, and it grew out of reporting that we'd already been doing. Sure, and this is kind of in the backdrop of you earning your master's here, right? Like, So so you're kind of uh, working in journalism and a student working toward your master's degree at the same time, right? Very much so. Yeah, I've, I've been working. I had been working part time at Montana Public Radio since a couple months before starting the grad journalism program here. Okay. And yeah, so working on, on my master's in journalism and reporting for MTPR, but they're kind of it's like a kneaded dough, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, stuff I was doing for a class ended up on the air at MTPR. Stuff I was doing for my master's thesis, which is a documentary 
you know, really set planted the seeds of this project. Was that the first last mile? Was that your thesis project? The last first mile. The last first mile. <laughs> I knew I would get that incorrect. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, but maybe we'll do a little bit of bio before we dig deeply into Richest Hill. But you know, I noticed you did your undergraduate at University of Toronto. So tell us a little bit about where you're from and then how kind of how did Montana show up on the radar screen? What brought you here? Yeah, so I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. Okay. in suburban Maryland. Have you ever been there? I have. Got friends from Bethesda, all that, that whole zone. I know it uh, somewhat well. Right around there, right around there. So, you know, it is like the epicenter of suburban sprawl. <laughs> Indeed. And I was looking for something new and different, and I'd been doing a lot of environmental activism when I was in high school, mm-hmm. and I have always had a love of traveling and exploring different cultures, and for lots of reasons decided uh, to go to college in Canada and um, studied environmental studies at the University of Toronto and dropped out halfway because okay. it was, you know, very theoretical, lots of policy, and found my way at that time into organic farming, as many do. Yeah. Um, yeah, some of us do, at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I, that, like that's the way you draw it up, but... Uh... <laughs> I yeah. See it. So I spent um, close to a decade uh, working on small scale farms, doing wow. a lot of teaching. Where? Um, all over. I, uh, Maine, Ontario, British Columbia, Michigan, Virginia, Maryland, New York State. Uh, anyways, a lot of you know seasonal work. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of both doing the practical side of growing food and also teaching people about growing food, farm business, and sure. food justice. And so. I was really, I was really into farming for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then in, when I was in Maine, I started working uh, for a nonprofit that was working with immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers okay. who were coming to the States and wanting to continue their agriculture. And I learned pretty quickly that I was more interested in hearing their stories, right. you know, trials, tribulations, than really like teaching them about farm businesses. And my parents were both like journalists and writers of different stripes. And for a long time, I was like, I'm not doing that. Like, yeah, you know, all this but then stuff it came back around, it came back around. And so then some stuff happened in my family. My dad died and it kind of made mm. me reevaluate like what my priorities were. Sure. And I realized that I'd already always sort of had um, an interest in writing stories, but I had been kind of shoving it away. And so then I started to kind of walk my way away from the ag and food justice world and realized I was interested in a lot more topics and into a documentary school in Maine. And eventually it's like, I need right, to. That's the, what's the name of the, the program? Salt Institute. Right? Salt Institute for okay. Documentary Studies yeah, in yeah. Maine, which is a great local institution. And that was me first dipping my toes into uh, any kind of storytelling in a real way. And I loved it. And did some really weird stories. Um, and, and after that, I was like, you know, I, I want to learn how to really report. I want to learn about journalism and the, the practice and the trade. Right. And I want to learn in community. And took a little bit of a bumpy road to finally get out here to Montana for uh, grad school. And part of the attraction was the focus on environmental science and natural resource reporting. 
Yeah, so is there any overlap with the environmental studies program here? Like, is that is that like a joint program with journalism? It's not a joint program, but there certainly is some overlap. Um, grad students in the journalism school are encouraged and actually required to take some yeah. classes in science and natural resource policy. And then we also have a lot of environmental studies students who want to learn how to tell stories and, that reach people and get some reporting chops. So there's some crossover. Excellent. So kind of in that swirl of, of getting here and earning your master's, you know, this reporting on um, environmental degradation in the state, the history of mining in the state, Butte in particular, all that swirls into the launch of the Richest Hill podcast, as, as you described. Uh, for listeners that haven't tuned in yet, give us the pitch. Like, what is the Richest Hill and why should people listen? So Richest Hill is a podcast about the past, present, and future of one of America's most notorious Superfund sites. That's kind of our tagline. Yeah. And I think the the pitch is that a lot of people think they know how the Butte story ends. They know about mining. They know about the cleanup there. It's kind of a, a sealed book, if you will. Um, and what we discovered, you know, or what I discovered really getting into some of the nitty gritty reporting in the past few years was that that is not the case. And in fact, Butte is at this really big pivot point um, about to potentially get this really final legally and financially binding cleanup deal after more than 30 years of dealing with this protracted Superfund cleanup. And so our pitch is that we want to understand if that's going to happen, what's going to be in it, if people in Butte are going to be happy with it, why or why not, and where this all came from. Hmm. And so really we've been trying to build um, on Butte's really rich history and so many wonderful and interesting people there um, to get into what many people find to be like the most bureaucratic, impenetrable, um, slow, boring thing, which is super fun. But I think I heard the other day that most Americans live within three miles of a Superfund site. Sure. So this is something a lot of people can relate to. Mm-hmm. And Butte is like, there's just so many superlatives there, and a lot of them apply to Superfund. So our whole idea was, you know, you think you know about Butte. You think you know the story. You think you know about mining and the cleanup. Uh, let's let's get deep into that. Yeah, absolutely. And each episode tells, you know, a, a bit of a different angle on the story. Uh, a couple of those I'd love to kind of dig into, if you're willing, First of all, Superfund in general, I don't really have much of an idea of the mechanics. I mean, it's sort of this amorphous thing where you think, well, it's government, but industries and responsible parties are involved as well. And there's maybe some notion of justice in there, whatever that means. Can you explain what Superfund is and how it works to the extent that you can? Sure, I'll do my best. So Superfund is shorthand for the law is called CERCLA. Yeah. It's a federal law and program designed to clean up abandoned hazardous waste sites, the worst of them across the country. Mm -hmm. It was passed in 1980 at the end of Carter's administration, and it really grew out of some really huge environmental health disasters in the 70s and earlier. Yeah. Love Canal being Mm -hmm. perhaps the most obvious And so the idea, I think, was that we've had this legacy of industry in this country. There haven't been a lot of regulations to rein it in or hold anyone responsible for any potential environmental consequences. 
So finally, we're going to pass this law, which is going to look at legacy pollution. And a lot of times the responsible parties long since defunct or left the country or Went disappeared in some totally. in some way. Yeah. So a lot of Superfund is, I think about it kind of in the two branches. You know, there's the folks at EPA that try to determine what the threats and what the contamination are through a really long series of studies and investigations and risk assessment and all that stuff. And then there's the whole enforcement piece, which is trying to figure out, okay, who's responsible? And, you know, in cases like Butte, it could be a company that bought up the original company that really did the extraction or buried the toxic chemicals or, you know, buried the nuclear waste, whatever. So a lot of it is just trying to trace the the liability and put someone, make someone responsible. Yeah, a lot of times, you know, somebody or an entity buys a legacy company and they're, they maybe try to have it both ways, right? Like we're buying the assets, we're buying the rights, but we're not necessarily trying to buy the liabilities. And yeah. how that gets enforced is kind of murky. Yeah, and something I'm still trying to find out. And in the case of Butte and some of the other Montana Superfund sites, you know, these were pretty early sites, the, the, the first batches of them. And so I think there was a lot of just discovery and trying to figure out, well, how does this law and this program really play out on the ground? And it really wasn't designed initially to deal with like huge mining districts. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think about urban Superfund sites that are very discrete, maybe a few acres or a few miles as you know, we're talking about a part of a whole watershed. Yeah, it's miles and miles of the Clark Fork River watershed, the Berkeley Pit, which is kind of part of it, but also another thing in and of itself, right? Yes. Let's talk about the pit a little bit. I mean, that's sort of a center point of, is it episode three? I, I can't recall. One of the episodes, um, the Berkeley Pit just seems like one of those mountains beyond mountains problems. Why do you say that? Wasn't it filling with toxic water and will fill forever or something like that if some solution is like and if some solution isn't isn't found that's going to overflow its its capacity? Yeah, you know my I don't know if that's accurate, but this is my, my thoughts perception. on the pit have changed a lot. Okay. I think since living in Butte. You know, first as an outsider encountering it, it is this huge spectacle. It's shocking to a lot of folks who have never been near an open pit mine before. Right. And the whole sort of, you know, goose story is notorious as well. Yes. And the twice goose story. Oh, yeah. It's I happened twice now. Important. Um, and so, as you said, yes, it's it's an abandoned open pit mine. It is filling with acid mine drainage. There are plenty of open pit mines across the country. There are some that are filled with toxic water, acid mine drainage. I think the Berkeley is unique because of its size Mm -hmm. and the fact that it's right next to a large town yeah, or small town, depending on where you come from. Um, So the pit, I think, is kind of a paradox, though, because it's it's like such a it's as someone said to me today, it's magnetic. You know, Hmm. you you either love it or you hate it. You think it's beautiful. You think it's disgusting. You think it's a paragon of, you know, America's industrial power, or you think it's just like a horror show. But as I continue to live in Butte and report on Superfund, it's actually one of the more solvable problems there. Okay. Or, Or it seems less complex in some ways. There is a solution. It will need to happen currently forever. And that is tough to wrap your mind around. But yes, you're right. I mean, it is currently filling with you know, acidic, heavy metal-laden mine water that's coming primarily from 
this labyrinth of underground mine tunnels and shafts in Butte. And because of the way hydrogeology works and groundwater happens, you know, they keep wanting to, the water keeps rising to fill up the holes that were made in the ground. And so the pit is like um, kind of a bathtub or a bucket that keeps filling. And, you know, the scientists say that when it reaches a certain level, the toxic water could enter the aquifer and then into Butte's Creeks, which are the headwaters of the Clark Fork River. Yeah, yeah. And so they have to keep that from happening. But how to do that and when to do that was actually decided like more than 20 years ago. Okay. That's the pumping mechanism. It's just ongoing forever. Exactly. I guess to me, that's the part of it. Like, wow, we got to be pumping forever. Me too. And I think that's a point that I continue to ruminate on and want to keep hitting on in my reporting is that a lot of these like solutions with quotes around them, um, they're sort of solutions, they're sort of fixes, but a lot of them have to happen forever or on geologic time, whatever that means to you. And I think just the repercussions of some of what we've taken out of the ground and why is important to think about. You touched on something there I'd love to kind of dig more into and that pun intended, I guess. Um, you know, this notion of beauty and history are kind of deeply wrapped together. Um, you know, the Berkeley Pit on many levels, yeah, it could be viewed as this sort of beautiful, in a sense, part of our history. And you can see that, like, the, the, the history of mining, particularly in a town like Butte, it just wraps around the identity, the place, and the people so deeply. Yet, and it's situated in this broader context of incredible natural beauty. I mean, you're looking across from downtown Butte at all the various mountain ranges surrounding the town. And that contradiction is really interesting. And you get into some of that in in the show. What's it like living there? And and you're living there and reporting on the people and the the history and all of that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think living there and being embedded, you know, as we say in journalism, in a a town that you're reporting on, there are some... It gets a little gnarly there, you know, because yeah. I want to get to know Butte. I want to build community. I also feel a responsibility to keep some sense of distance, at least mm-hmm. from, you know, the individuals and agencies and companies I'm reporting on. So, And Butte is such a tight-knit place, and so that's just tricky trying to navigate that. But in terms of how Butte is different, well, it's a mining town. I've never lived in a mining town before. Mm-hmm. I've lived in Lowell, Massachusetts, which was like mill a town. T- totally yeah. big mill town and Poughkeepsie, New York, which also very industrial. But there's really something different about living in a mining town and living in a mining town that has both underground and open pit history because yeah. people in Butte just talk about like the, really the world that existed underground that is something I'll never get to experience mm-hmm. um i wasn't there and it's flooded now and um and just the yeah the camaraderie is something folks talk about a lot like just the we're in it together kind of approach to life that miners and their families had to have to survive and i think in butte a lot of the heyday is gone and the you know the the times in history that people really hearken back to are getting deeper and deeper into the past. Yeah. And um, that's just tricky because I, I can empathize with like nostalgia. And I, again, I wasn't there for the glory days, but I also find myself wondering, well, what's next? And, you know, how are we approaching the consequences of some of this industry? 
And then also moving to Montana, like, as you know, Montana's reputation is pristine, beautiful, Glacier National Park, yada, yada, yada. And I lived in Missoula for a couple of years. And then Butte is just a totally different world, I got to say. Okay. You know, I mean, it is, right? Like, it is defined by this industry, this company, um, and you see the you see it everywhere and i think that's part of what drew it drew me to it was that you have to face uh i mean mining is just one example but you have to look it in the face you have to think about the social and environmental uh results yeah and you can't turn away whereas in missoula you know you it's a lot easier to do that A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. This is Sam Schultz, and you're listening to A New Angle. Well, and, and that's an interesting part of the story, too. I think it was episode five, you sort of tell the story about you know, how a lot of the, the the removal of the Milltown Dam here, you know, we take this mining waste and toxic sludge that ends up coming down river to the Milltown Dam. And then we take this dam out. It's this big victory for environmentalists. And then we ship the stuff back up to where it came from. And that's sort of heaping more problems on, I think the story was told really well in that book, Opportunity Montana. Yeah, I read that. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, there's so many kind of contradictions happening here. But as you said, in in, in Butte, it's unavoidable. Like it's that's what the place is about, and that's who the people are, I would assume. Yeah, from what I can tell. And, you know, in Butte, a lot of people talk about now how different it, it looks than it used to because the hill is green yeah. and it has grass on it. And you look at old pictures and it was like all mine dumb. So I appreciate that a lot of changes happen, but I'm very aware that when I'm looking at a grassy area, it's more likely than not covering a bunch of mine waste. And I'm happy that I don't have to come in contact with that. And there is, um, you know, some, some work has been done, but I'm just aware of how engineered the landscape is there. Um, you know, how humans have just designed it so in so much detail. And, 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 um, and then of course that looking at the pit is a whole other thing. And I think it's worth mentioning. It's not just the Berkeley pit. Mostly when you drive into Butte off 90, you're seeing the Continental Pit, which is the current operating open pit mine. Okay. Is and that the one that's a little further west? Okay. A little further east. Oh, yeah. east, sorry. Yeah. But you can see the high wall as soon as you're driving to town. And, like, that looks like someone just took a bite out of the mountain. And, right. I, again, I'm not passing judgment on that. I'm just saying the extent to which humans have um, uh, reworked Butte from the inside out, from the bottom to the top, is just so obvious. And part of me just really enjoys having to think about that and deal with it. And yeah. frankly, sometimes I, I, um, I wish we didn't have to. So I'd like to follow up on the people of the community a little bit. It's, and it's interesting you mentioned like getting to know the people as a resident of the community, but also reporting on the, the town as well. Um, what's kind of the attitude about um, the Anaconda company and some of the corporate players that, that uh, have been involved in the building of the town, but also responsible in many ways for some of the legacy. Yeah, I think it's a pretty complicated relationship to Anaconda and also Atlantic Richfield, which bought up Anaconda. Um, I have talked to a number of underground and open pit miners, and 
I think there's just a mix of, you know, uh, well, especially underground folks loving the work and really identifying with it. Yep. Um, huge part of identity. Huge part of identity. And that's not just the miners. It has to do with the family and the rest of the town. Um, and, you know, <laughs> also, I think we include this in the uh, in one of the episodes. I can't remember. But there's also this sense of, like, eh, they owe it to us. Like, if, if, folk, if miners went home filling their lunch buckets with some extra nails or building supplies, it was kind of like, well, we can build our house a bit. I mean, Anaconda owns this whole town anyway. So what's, what's the big deal if we, like, skim a little off the top? <laughs> I mean, I wasn't around for the days when um, Anaconda really just dominated the state in terms of the politics and the uh-huh. economy. And, and I think people have some complex feelings about that. But in general... I mean, Butte's just strange because it it is a company town, uh, more or less. And but so there's like this, I think gratitude might be the wrong word, but acknowledgement that without mining and without the companies in charge, like Butte wouldn't really exist. Right, right. And, you know, and then there's like these families with generations of miners or folks involved in mining somehow and so that through line is really important i i've noticed a shift in the way people talk about it when atlantic richfield took over because Mm. anaconda for a long time was a homegrown company it was based in butte then it starts to get more corporate you know they start to move their headquarters and that's when things really start to change for folks is like they're not accessible as accessible um you know, you can't just like go to the bar and talk to an anaconda boss or something. And so I think as as the company uh, expands beyond Butte and has more of its global reach, and then especially when this outsider oil company ends up buying it up, right? Then you start to hear a lot more um, not as fun takes on the company. And especially, I, I hear from a lot of people that. You know, Atlantic Richfield's decision to end mining and especially shut off the underground pumps, which led off led to the flooding of the Berkeley pit, was really kind of the the um, coup de grace, you know, because that was a decision that folks in Butte really didn't have a lot of power over mm-hmm. or any input into. And I think the th- reason that's so important is because it really prevented any future underground mining or, or even if you're not mining anymore, um, kind of embracing that part of Butte's history. So I think it's a complicated relationship with a company that giveth and taketh. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I mean, I, I, can re- I can understand that. Yeah, and then if your identity is deeply ingrained in a certain type of work, it's got to be hard to conceptualize doing something else. I think it's still hard for a lot of folks in Butte to conceptualize doing something else. And part of that is because the uh, Montana Resources continues to operate a mine. It's a really big part of the economy. It provides a lot of great jobs, uh, and a lot of folks don't want mining to stop or to let go of the industry, and I can understand that, too. Uh, I guess I just wonder about, you know, for a long time, Butte was so dominated by that one industry and one company, and there was such boom and bust from that. Uh, It's like, well, you know, what does a more stable future look like? What does less dependency look like? It's diversity and diversifying possible there yeah what are the alternatives yeah i mean it's not like it's pretty harsh arable land right you're not you know more than i like can you grow anything there is the land yeah what else can you do it can attract industry which is doing some of yeah tech industry and so forth and 
got Montana Tech there too, which you know, has the mining tradition, but but can also fuel some of the, the the more technological infrastructure that's being built in the state. I would I would think. Yeah, uh, definitely, and I, I think there probably are opportunities for manufacturing. There's a lot of like industrial yeah um, puzzle pieces there. It's also near the highway. Um, then you have all of Uptown Butte and it's really incredible architecture and history and potential for like retail or service. I don't know. I, I don't have the answer. I think Butte's wondering about that. Um, yeah. I'm just curious about the role mining is going to continue to play. Yeah. So you've done five episodes. Episode six is in, in the offing at some point in the near future. We hope, or, you know, I hope, I hope. Um, <laughs> and you know, I guess, so, this is interesting. I mentioned before we started recording, we had your colleague, Amy Martin, uh, on from Threshold Podcast. I know you've worked a little bit on, on that production as well. Your process has been different. Amy and her team go in, do the reporting, come out, spend months in the editing cave, and then release series over time, but it's sort of already planned out. You're sort of investigating this as you go and bringing it to the audience somewhat in real time. What's that process been like? Yeah, it's a whole uh, new adventure for me. I and mean, we framed, as I said, we, we framed this whole project around this concept that Butte appears to be on the verge of this final cleanup deal after more than 30 years, which is going to at least provide, I think, some certainty and some closure to the Superfund cleanup. Uh, but anytime you undertake something like that, you don't know how it's going to turn yeah. out. And, I, and I'm learning more and more that in Butte, a lot of folks are like, oh, man, like we've heard this before, <laughs> you know? I mean, sure. and there's a lot of evidence for that of things seem to be about to go in one direction and they don't for various reasons. So um, I, I think the only commitment or promise we've made to ourselves and to our listeners is that we're going to continue to follow this trajectory and uh -huh. we're going to tell you what happens and try to put it in some context. And I think for a lot of folks in Butte and beyond the, the um, irresistible piece of this deal currently is that surprisingly it's under the EPA administration, you know, under the president Trump's administration that has really been providing a lot of pressure hmm. to get Butte done. Yeah. What's the story behind that? Like how did this, this pressure, this initiative that we're going to solve this problem or put together the final deal. Like, what's the history of that? Still trying to parse that out. But <laughs> but, but from what I can tell, um, you know, the, the new leaders at EPA had to decide what they were going to prioritize. And while they have done a lot of environmental deregulation, they've said that Superfund is a priority. Mm -hmm. And they then made this kind of top 20 list of sites that were the creme de la creme of their priority and they picked handpicked some that they thought had been dragging on too long and with a little bit more um, emphasis attention work could be sealed up and butte and anaconda were on that list okay and i, I think you know there's whatever's going on at the national pol political level but then there's also the like local and regional epa staff and they had an administrator at the regional level that seemed very, very committed to showing up in Butte, spending time there, Anaconda too, and bringing um, the different parties back to the table after things had kind of gone stagnant for a while uh -huh. and saying, you need to make a decision uh, and we're going to help you get there. 
And so it, to me, it's like, wow, <laughs> a leader at the regional level really has had a lot of impact. Yeah. And a lot of people in Butte and Anaconda really appreciated that and thought this uh, person, Doug Benevento, could was trustworthy and had integrity. And we're just really excited that you know, no matter who he worked for or who his boss was, that Butte and Anaconda were like finally getting the attention they deserved. And you know, they have brought the parties back to the table. They've been releasing more and more information, kind of incrementally. And um, I think we're all you know, excited and curious um, as to whether they're going to really get to the end of this process and what's going to be in this deal. Because part of it is that there's been a gag order over this for quite a while. So like folks know that they're talking, but not quite sure about what. Yeah. So who exactly is gagged in this gag order? Yeah. The parties at the table, which are so EPA, the state, the local government and Atlantic Richfield Company. Okay. And, you know, having a gag order, having some level of confidentiality in these like big settlements, from what I understand, is not so unique. But in the context of Superfund, I think it's pretty rare. Um, It just makes it hard because the community over time, I think, has wanted more and more information and a level of involvement. And this gag order has made it pretty tough to get that. And it's only been recently that's been kind of been peeled back. Okay. Yeah, you could you could see how a gag order could lead to a little bit more of an efficient process, but also one that is far less transparent. I think that's exactly the balance they're yeah. dealing with. So that's interesting. You mentioned that the people in the community are sort of, you know, one, excited about what the CPA administrator is doing. And it makes me think, what's the kind of relationship to to the federal government in view, the attitude toward it and its efforts to kind of I don't know if litigate's the right word, but adjudicate what's happening in that community. Um, I don't think I can generalize about the attitude towards the federal government. I mean, I think the relationship to EPA has involved a lot, excuse me, evolved a lot over time. Yeah, I mean, I guess my my reason for asking that question is that sounded more positive than I would expect. Okay. I spent a little bit of time in Libby, and and my experience there was like, get the feds out of here. You know, mm-hmm. get out of here, turn the mines back on, I mean, let us start logging again. Like, that's what we do. Yeah. And, you know, Libby is in such a different part of Montana. I mean, uh, Butte has a Democratic union labor reputation going on. Yeah, that's 100, true. 100 years. And I think that has a big impact. So I don't think this um, kind of innate distrust or distaste for the federal government existed. I think. Um, just how the community has received and been involved with this cleanup over time, the different individuals who represent the agency has changed. And then, I mean, this, I think this notion of trust is really important. Like from what I can tell from living in Butte, you know, your character, your, um, kind of your word is pretty darn important there. Yeah, I would imagine, you know, more so than other places I've lived, like, um, and so I think, so there's that. And then I think it's hard for people in the community there to just believe necessarily like what some expert or government representative is saying. And that's really woven into how complicated environmental health issues are to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, science versus your own lived experience of health or health risks there. Yep. 
And so um, in terms of, yeah, I think certain people, more vocal folks in the community, uh, have over time become less trusting of EPA. I think Mm -hmm. as the cleanups gone on, others see a lot of progress made. And uh, some are just like write off any (laughs) Superfund cleanup at this point and say it's all flawed and, you know, this is never going to be good enough. And others are saying, look, this new administrator who's no longer in the position has come here. He's done what he said. You know, he's making a difference after years. We don't care who he works for. Butte is really democratic. Um, We just, he seems to be a man of his word and he's doing what he said. So let's give him the benefit of the doubt. And I've been hearing that for a lot of people of like cautious optimism is a popular phrase or uh, the devil's in the details, like things look good, but only time will tell. But yeah, let's let's not just let um, uh, past be prologue and let's give it a chance. Yeah. How has, I mean, you, you touched on this a little bit, like how you're in a really interesting spot being a member of the community and reporting on it at the same time. Um, how's your work been received? Like how's your relationship with the town maybe changed over the course of this reporting? As to how it's been received, I don't know the full extent of that. I I get some feedback, and a lot of it has been really kind and positive. And some of that's from locals, and some of it's from folks from Butte who have moved far away and feel like they they have a really hard time explaining how um, complicated Butte is to, say, someone in Vermont or Seattle. Uh And they feel like this project has at least tried to capture some of that complexity and um and just how weird Butte is and wonderful and like full full of great characters and history Mm -hmm. so I've heard a lot of that um I think I kind of get a sense that from some folks in Butte some would just rather like not talk about Superfund that much and move on and highlight other things and you know I think after such a long period of time living with this are fatigued and just yeah want it to be done don't want any negative press um don't really want a lot of investigating i haven't i can't say that i've like gotten that really directly but i i kind of sense it um and i can understand that too <laughs> but some are just happy that finally i don't know not finally there's been great reporting on it for a long time but that montana public radio is paying more attention that we're trying to uh, you know create this tale that's woven with a lot of different perspectives. Uh-huh. I think that's one thing, you know, in terms of how my relationship to Butte's changed. The more time I spend there, the crazier it gets to me, you know, <laughs> the the harder it is to parse out any like one narrative because I talk to a lot of people and they have great valid viewpoints. Um so yeah, trying to parse out well what really did happen here and what are some of the roots of the conflicts or solutions we're seeing now um but i i don't know i i think i started with affection and intrigue in butte and the more time i spend and live there um just the wilder it gets honestly yeah and i gotta say like that 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 sort of multi-dimensional sense that you're trying to convey there like that comes through so authentically in the series i mean i you can sort of see you and your team kind of not necessarily struggling, but struggling to present a really complicated picture. And it'd be easy to say like, oh yeah, we need to do this. We need to shut this down or change this or whatever. But 
I guess to your point you made earlier in the podcast that I was surprised by, but now I kind of understand more, like the solution of pumping forever is kind of simple in the grand scheme. The solutions to a lot of the other realities in Buter are not quite so simple. Yeah, and I think that's just a great example of how the obvious sort of most attractive, um, craziest thing, you know, at a superficial level is is like that. And then it's like uh, a little bit simpler underneath. And I'm, I'm glad that's coming through because, uh, as you probably know, like taking on any amount of Butte or Butte's history is daunting. Yeah. I mean, especially from not being a Butte native. And I feel like that's been covered in so many ways and times. And I have so much deep respect from that. But the period like since the 80s till now has been less covered. And I I think, yeah, just nuance, different people's perspectives, different versions of the truth. Like that's what we're after because this is just complex at every single level. And if we were... Um, pretending to portray any one version of it, I would feel like we're not uh, honoring what's really happening. And so I, I, for me, the goal in this project is to elevate different ideas, different voices, different mm-hmm. perspectives, especially those you don't hear as much, and give them a different, yeah, a chance to <laughs> to speak. You know, I, I don't know. I, th- th- just this idea that, oh, everyone knows, like, Butte's peak was in 1917 and then it's all been downhill from there. That's not true. Yeah, That's not fair. Simple. It's too simple. And we're trying to get at the middle between is, you know, is Butte an environmental disaster and is Butte um, a mining utopia? I mean, there's got to be like something in the middle Truth there. Is in the middle. So we're getting, we're trying to get in there. So, I mean, the way you're kind of describing this reporting you, with this deal maybe happening at some unclear point in the future. So you're kind of building this plane as you're trying to land it in many ways. Um, totally. You know, your episode six could be dictated by what happens, you know, right now or tomorrow or or a year from now or whatever. Um, I guess this is my long-winded way of saying some uncertainty on where the series is going, but are there little stories that, that you'd like to dig into that you can tease us a little bit with, like what we can expect in the next several episodes? Yeah, uh, definitely. And so episode six is really going to be looking at um, early Superfund in Butte and where are some of the roots, you know, that we're talking about happening in present day. Where did those get planted? But where we're going is, yeah, following whether or not this deal happens and why. Mm -hmm. Any potential fallout. Um, And the thing with the deal, it's kind of, (laughs) I don't know. It's it's an interesting way to frame a project because we're only going to know so much in the next few months, yeah. and a lot of um, what's in it will be happening over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Right, the years. implementation is a whole different animal. Exactly. And so we're really interested in like what promises are being made and um, what is Butte getting after this long amount of time. But I, I don't think that's where the story ends because we're also – so many people in Butte talk about the future and – we want Superfund to be done and in the rearview mirror. So we're going to be looking a little bit into what are visions of the future for Butte. Um, and part of that also has to do with the current mining operations. So we're going to be talking about that. And I think trying to leave folks off with this sense of just better understanding where Butte's at today with the cleanup and kind of putting some breadcrumbs along the trail of 
as we continue through the path of life, like what to be remembering or paying attention to. Sure. If you heard in 2019 or 2020 whenever, or never, whenever it happens to be that this um, final thing was signed, as we know with Superfund, nothing's final, nothing's really ever done, but we hope it's kind of um, adding to the public record and not just from the you know, experts' perspectives, but from the lived experience mm-hmm. of, of this incredible town with this incredible story and hopefully incredible future. Well, like uh, any good research endeavor, you're encumbering more questions than answers. Um, and it's just sort of been amazing to uh, to learn more about it in this conversation, but also to, to listen to the first five episodes and I eagerly await the, the next set of episodes. Nora, thanks so much uh, for coming in and talking about The Richest Hill and for doing the work, too. I mean, it sounds like an incredibly challenging but fulfilling project. For folks that want to learn more about Richest Hill, find it online, where can they go? Sure. So our homepage is buttepodcast.org. You can listen to all the episodes there. Uh, you can also subscribe wherever podcasts are found. Uh, we also have a lot of content on mtpr.org, which mm-hmm. is Montana Public Radio's homepage. And we're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Butte Podcast. You can search for Richest Hill. Uh, you can also just come find me wandering around Butte. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll be on the lookout. Nora, thanks so much, and uh, best of luck with the reporting. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Nora and be sure to check out Richest Hill. It is amazing. You will not be disappointed. Okay. Coming up next week, we have Sheila Stearns. Sheila is a legend in Montana and I'm excited for you to learn all about her latest coming out of retirement job, trying to solve congressional redistricting here in Montana. Stay tuned for that next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums, Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that a new angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps, executive producer Stefan Borsum and interns Aspen Runkel and Max Gibson. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Mies, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word. Be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.